you are listening to The Currency. Welcome. I'm your host, I'm Mike Gaston, and I am glad to have you along. Thanks for joining me. This is episode number 138 of the podcast, 138. I'm recording it on Monday, December 18th, 2023. Had to think for a moment there. And uh, today we're going to be talking about Eric Vogelin in his book, The New Science of Politics. This is, I want to say, number six, maybe, in the series. Uh, the series I started back in January of the year, late January, I published the first one. We have dragged this out. I say we. Look, you, you've done nothing wrong, ladies and gentlemen. I have dragged this out uh, quite longer than it needs to be. But I'm really glad to be back to it. And today we're going to be talking about uh, the Puritan case. That's the title of this chapter that Vogelin covers. He uses the Puritan Reformation of the Church of England and the the English Civil War, this period that that starts kind of in the 1500s, but really takes root and starts to happen in the mid-late 1600s. During the English Civil Wars, there were three of them, kind of a period of time where you had three civil wars. And you had the Puritans in full force, the driving factor. and, And Vogelin uses this as a sort of case study of Gnosticism taking over a society. It's kind of interesting. So we're going to talk about the Puritans of England as an example of a Gnostic revolution. And and to do that, you've got to tie Puritanism to Gnosticism. And I'm going to tell you, there's a bit of a problem there. And in, in, in Vogelin kind of sets the stage in his discussions of Joachim of Flora. And what I'll do in the show notes is I'll, I'll list all the other episodes. We talk a little bit about Joachim and his three symbols, three ages. Uh, you can listen up on that. I'm not going to rehash everything. But if you go to thecurrency.show forward slash episode 138, again, thecurrency.show forward slash episode 138, in the show notes, I'll list links to the other episodes so that you can get caught up because, uh, yeah, what, what better things do you have to do than listen to hours and hours of um, me talking about an obscure book? But he lays the, the table in, in a way when it comes to Gnosticism, but he doesn't explicitly call out the Gnostic elements of Puritanism, if you will. He kind of just assumes that you know that it's Gnostic. He, he makes this kind of claim, but, but doesn't explicitly build the case of, here are the specific things about Puritanism that are Gnostic in nature. I don't mean to say that like he ignores it or skirts it. He just isn't like methodical in building that case. Now, part of the reason that might be is because this book was really a series of talks that he gave. And in a lecture of situation, you don't necessarily have the time to build that type of a framework. And you have to, given the circumstances and the context, assume that your listeners have certain information that they can work with, certain a certain grasp of, say, church history or political theory, et cetera. So it may be that the folks listening, he just assumed like they can kind of connect the dots. He, he does, it's not obscured. It's not like you read it and you're like, I can't, I don't understand where he's coming from. But, you know, to call Puritanism a Gnostic movement is kind of a big accusation, in my opinion, especially given what I said a moment ago, that a lot of American Protestant tradition is informed by the Puritan movement. Not all of it, but a lot of it. You would think that you would have to kind of make a case for that because most American Protestants, Reformed Christians, uh, 
if you will, would would take umbrage like, hey, we're not Gnostic. We're, we're more pure. We're more accurate to uh, the faith, the gospel, et cetera. That's kind of the beliefs, you know, that, that, that a Protestant will come to the table with, at least one paying attention. And, and whereas a Catholic or an Orthodox will say, no, we're more Christian in our approach. And, and rightly so. I mean, you can have these arguments back and forth. I, I'm not here to settle that score. Uh, but it's interesting that Vogelin kind of connects the two, but doesn't explicitly, you know, map it out. Let's talk a little bit, just a little bit of a historical background. I'm, I'm not going to get into this too deeply, but I want to set the stage a little bit about both the Puritans and the English Civil War. So I mentioned that this is kind of taking place between the 1500s and into the, into the mid-late 1600s. But the Puritan movement, if you remember, uh, I want to say it was, and I'm not going to get all my names, and it was King Henry the whatever, uh, wanted to absolve his marriage at, at, at an early stage England was Catholic. It was a Roman Catholic. It was part of the Catholic, holy, you know, the Catholic Empire, etc. So England was Catholic, Roman Catholic. King Henry wanted to absolve a marriage, his marriage, and the Pope said no. <laughs> and this is this is just shorthand. Uh, you know, King Henry then turned around and said, "Well, fine. We'll uh, we'll become part of this Reformation. We'll leave the Catholic Church and the Church of England. This, you know, this again, the state religion." I say again, I don't think I said that to begin with, but state religion, this is not, you know, plurality. This isn't like you live in a country like America where you can, you know, be all kinds of faith or no faith whatsoever. This is the Church of England. It's the state religion. The country's Catholic. The king says, no, we're not. We're leaving the Catholic Church. Uh, And I think there were other things going on. Yes, the absolution of the marriage was definitely an issue. But, you know, there was always a wrestle for power between kings and the pope. And, and you kind of had this Augustinian split, uh, the city of God. You had temporal or civil power, and you had uh, spiritual, ecclesiastical uh, power, transcendent power. And so the kings would represent temporal, civil uh, power. You know, they ruled over their land. They could uphold laws and taxation and property rights and all that type of thing. But the Pope oversaw all the spiritual power, the heavenly power, the the celestial and the ecclesiastical power. And so, you know, if you wanted to be saved in the and you wanted to be right with God in the afterlife, et cetera, et cetera, you had to be right with the, the Pope and the church. And so these kings didn't have total power over the land. They had to share power with the church. And the church had certain jurisdictions and the, the kings had certain jurisdictions. And they were often, you know, vying back and forth uh, to try to over, you know, get power over the other one or get freedom from the other one. And these kings often would chafe at the Vatican, at, the, at Rome, in the, in the papal power. And so there was all that going on in the background. Well, anyway, the Church of England left the Catholic Church and became part of the Reformation. Now, when leaving the Catholic Church, they, the, the English Church, the Church of England, did not make as an aggressive or, or a complete transition out of the Catholic Church as, as churches in other countries, meaning it retained a lot of its Catholicism because this really wasn't a Reformation of theological principle, a reformation driven by a passion for the truth of scripture. This was more of a political move 
to, to wrest power away from the Pope, to get out from under the thumb of the Pope, and to give the English king a little bit more wiggle room and a little bit more authority, et cetera, et cetera. So when the Church of England made the shift away from Catholicism, it retained a lot of Catholic trappings. It, it initially was relatively sacramental. Now, some of you may be listening going, what do you mean by that? So in a Catholic or Orthodox world, and they have different ways of getting at this, you have a more sacramental religion, meaning there are things that are sacred. There are things in this temporal world where the sacred touches and they are means to grace, to, to receiving God's grace. That's why in the Catholic Church, you have sacraments. You have the sacrament of marriage. It's a sacred thing that, that is not just a civil binding of a union of two people, but it's a sacred joining together in the spirit before God. And it's, it's a place where the transcendent touches the profane, the sacred and the profane meet. And through marriage, because it's a sacrament, we can receive grace from God. Uh, communion would be another sacrament. Confession, another sacrament. Baptism, another sacrament. Last rites, another sacrament. So you have these sacraments within uh, the Catholic and also the Orthodox Church. That their sacraments overlap, and some they have some that others don't, but they're very sacramental. And through these sacraments that human beings can participate in and submit to and become a part of, you can then receive God's grace. You you receive this, this saving power, the grace of God. And in the Protestant church, in the true Reformation, it's an act of faith. You receive salvation through an act of faith in Christ. And all these sacraments become symbols. So for instance, communion no longer is a way in which one receives grace into themselves, uh, but now it's a symbol. You're just recognizing the death of Jesus, the, 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 the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood. We do this in, do this in remembrance of me. That's what Christ said at the Last Supper. Whenever you get together, you know, break bread, drink wine, break, eat my flesh, drink my blood, do this in remembrance of me. And so the Protestants said, well, this is just a remembrance. There's no sacred, magical, mystical thing happening here. It's just a remembrance. And so it becomes, it, it's not sacral. So the, the Protestant church uh, is, is not sacral in the sense that, say, the Catholic or an Orthodox church is. Now, the one thing that the Protestants would say is kind of a sacrament, if you will, maybe a small s sacrament, is the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of scripture, the preaching of quote unquote the word because that is the that's the key sacrament if you will in a protestant service and that's why you'll notice a lot of focus around preaching uh, whereas in an orthodox or a catholic church the uh, preaching you know it's, it's it's usually a small homily or something it's it's a little lighter in nature it doesn't you know get into exegetical work into the scripture and uh, doesn't, you know, expound and dig deep and cross-reference and try to send you away having fed you some meat uh, from the gospel. It's, it's, uh, it's more of a, you know, kind of some good thoughts on, on living before God. And so the Church of England retained a number of its sacral elements. Well, you have this group of people over time that start to pop up that were pejorative 
pejoratively called Puritans. They didn't call themselves Puritans, but but it was it was kind of like they wanted to, they wanted to purify the church. They wanted to have full reformation. They didn't want a partial reformation of the Church of England. They didn't want to just kind of come out and, and retain a lot of Catholicism. They wanted to eliminate all Catholicism from the church and purify it so that it was a true pure church based on the true pure you know tenets of the Reformation and of Scripture, etc. And that term Puritan was kind of used, it was used in a pejorative sense, almost like they were sticklers, they were perfectionists, but not in a good way. It was like, yeah, you're a stickler, you're wound up on the on the details. But you had this group of people, they're Puritans. Now, there's a number of things that the Puritans embraced. And, you know, they had like a list of, I won't call them grievances, but like a list of things that, that they thought uh, were important. Uh, here's five things. So one was scripture alone is the rule that should govern all human conduct. So what you have in the old Catholic and the in the Orthodox churches, you have kind of like a three-legged stool. It's 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 tradition. It's um, it's the church's authority, the ecclesiastical authority, and then and then you have uh, scripture. So you have traditions that have come up through the years. It's the authority of of the Pope, et cetera, and then you've got you've got Scripture itself. The Puritans were saying, no, it's solely Scripture. We're not submitting to some Pope. We're not submitting to some bishop somewhere. You guys don't get to tell us what to do. It's not tradition. Just because somebody did something this way for a long time doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way. So Scripture alone is the rule that should govern all human conduct. Scripture prescribes in un alterable form of church government. So scripture kind of prescribes to us an unalterable form of church government. So you can't have church government that kind of comes up out of tradition, out of political necessity, et cetera, et cetera. If it's not in scripture, it shouldn't be part of the church government. So essentially you're going to have what people today call the fivefold ministry. You're going to have pastors, prophets, apostles, teachers, and then your administrators, and then you're going to have deacons and elders, and that's it. I mean, you're, that's, you're not going to have bishops and popes and so on. There's no, there's no necessarily pope, you know, explicitly described in Scripture. And so they're saying, well, no, we're not going to submit to some type of authority structure that's not found in Scripture. Uh, number three, the English church is corrupted by Roman Catholic orders, rites, and ceremonies. And I want to be clear, I'm not attacking the Roman Catholic Church. This is the, what the Puritans were saying. So they're saying that the English church is corrupted by Roman Catholic orders, rites, and ceremonies. This is them saying we, ha- we have not really reformed the church to its fullest extent. Number four, the law is corrupt in not allowing lay elders. Because they would not allow lay elders, meaning people that were not necessarily trained in seminary, people that were not full-time in the church, people that were not uh, brought up in church leadership, in, in the ecclesiology and the ecclesiastical order of the church, uh, they were saying, well, they ought to, there ought to be allowed lay elders. You know, Farmer John, if he's a good godly man that fits the scriptural requirements for an elder, the husband of one wife, not given to quarrels, you know, has his family and house in order, et cetera. Uh, that man should be allowed to be an elder, and the church was saying no. And then lastly, uh, number five, there ought not to be in the church bishops. <laughs> so you can see the, the Puritans are upset at this these bishoprics, uh, these layers of authority. So you, what you can see here is it's a very anti-authoritarian, very anti-hierarchical 
movement. The Puritans were very much about the priesthood of every believer. This is something that uh, Martin Luther talked about, the priesthood of every believer. And, and the Puritans were taking that a step further. They wanted, they wanted only hierarchy and leadership that's found in Scripture in the church. They didn't want to have bishops over them. They didn't want to be corrupted by these un, unbiblical rites and customs and orders. They, they thought that every individual should be just governed by Scripture alone, that there shouldn't be anything else governing people. Now, if you listen back to the last episode where we talked about this uh, work of Vogelin's, you remember the discussion about Joachim of Flora and this last age, the third realm that he talked about would be this beautiful time where there was no leaders and all the people were just submitted to the Holy Spirit and there was a brotherhood of all men. It was kind of very new agey kind of kumbaya thing. And I think this is where, you know, Vogelin starts to, to, to identify the Puritans. I don't know he starts to, but this is where you start to see Vogelin's identification of the Puritans with a Gnostic movement. It very much kind of aligns with Joachim's vision of this age to come, this third realm, uh, the Third Reich that manifested in, in um, the Third Rome, the Third Reich in uh, Nazi Germany, interestingly. Again, you can go back and listen to that, that episode. But those were the kind of main complaints or beefs, if you will, of the Puritans. And they wanted to see this um, elimination of the hierarchy of the ecclesiastical order, elimination of the Roman Catholic orders, rites, ceremonies. They want to see lay eldership. They want to see individuals guided and governed only by scripture. And they wanted the church to, to adhere. They wanted anything extra scriptural. Only things that were found in scripture explicitly should be found in the church. And this is this idea of purifying this Puritanism. And so you had this movement. Now, what's interesting about the Puritans, and, and it, by the way, it showed up in even things like, what did the clergy wear? They didn't agree that the clergy should wear all these vestments. You know, it should be very plain, black, simple, et cetera. So what's interesting about the Puritans is they tended to be involved in things like business. So these are people that over time had wealth. They were merchants. They invested in projects like uh, ships going to the New World to get spices and so on. And so these became people of prominence in society. They were not necessarily, although sometimes they were not necessarily aristocratic, but they were of a class of people that had means. And the more means they acquired over time, the more that they were uh, connected to the aristocracy of the time, the more that people were won over uh, to Pur the Puritan way of thinking the more influence that they gained in the English uh, society. You know, you might be thinking, well, uh, you know, this is interesting, but what, what's, the, what's the import? Like, how does this tie to the English Civil War? So you have this desire to see the church purified. At the same time, there's kind of a, a something going on in the monarch, the level of the monarch, the king. I say kind of. <laughs> That's a throwaway comment. There's not kind of. It's going on. Essentially, you have King James in the 1500s, I want to say the 1500s, who is himself friendly to the Puritans. And you can see some of the things that he did that were very supportive of the continued uh, reformation and, and um, you know, modification of the church to, to be less Roman Catholic in nature. Then his son, Charles, I want to say Charles I, like, you know, there's a lot here. So forgive me any uh, history listeners or... English uh, folks from the UK, England that are up on this stuff. Uh, if this Yankee gets something off, feel free to comment. You can email me if you like. Um, 
But King Charles seems to be more sympathetic to the Roman Catholics. He marries, he has a French queen. Of course, she's Roman Catholic. Um, he puts in uh, a bishop and then eventually an archbishop named Laud and uh, L-A-U-D, Laud, 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 and Laud, um, Laud, let's say Laud. Uh, and the king starts to put into place things like uh, focusing on beautifying the churches, kind of making them more magnificent, if you will. They start investing in putting up altar rails around uh, the front of the church, very, very kind of sacramental thing to do. Like you, you don't just, you know, receive communion, you have to go up and kneel at the altar rail. That altar rail kind of demarcates like the sacred versus the profane. Um, again, this raises hackles. And, and also King Charles, very harsh on cr- critics. You know, you have these Puritan writers, uh, I'll call them noblemen. Uh, I don't know that they're aristocrats, but people of, of repute and uh, reputation. And they'll, you know, publish tracts, very critical of the king, et cetera. He'll have them arrested. He'll have their ears cut off, imprisoned, and so on. I mean, he's very harsh. And this did happen to noblemen. I do know for a fact that that some noblemen, some people of birth, uh, people of quality, were arrested and had their ears lopped off, which was a which was an extremely harsh sentence against a nobleman. This raises the hackles of the people and especially of the nobility class and those that are Puritans. And so you find more and more there's this agitation, this line drawn between the king and between the Puritans. Now, on top of that, you have this wrestling amongst parliament. A lot of these Puritans are being elected to parliament and the parliament holds the power of the purse. The king can do all kinds of stuff, but he cannot raise taxes for the most part without the authority, the approval of parliament. And so you have a parliament that's hostile to the king. They feel the king is abusing his powers. He's being overly aggressive towards them and and their class and the people. They also are fearful that he's trying to uh, restore the Church of England to the Roman Catholic Church. They see some things he's doing actually that that would, you know, say to them, yeah, that's what's going on. And so they're withholding his ability to generate taxes. This also causes him to lose wars and to struggle to run his administration, his his government, etc. Through this growing, growing gulf of hostility between the king and parliament, and parliament angling to try to gain more power, the king trying to reduce their power, and there's this fight going on. This ends up eventually in what is known as the English Civil War. And the... the, the uh, you know, outcome of this is, and you've probably heard of Oliver Cromwell. The Cromwell's New Model Army is kind of well known, but Cromwell, parliamentarian, parliamentarian, and a Puritan. Uh, long and short of it, over overwhelms the king's armies. Uh, they 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 capture the king. They, I think at some point he gets beheaded, and you have this um, period of time in England where it's a quasi-democracy, not really, but a quasi-democracy run by uh, maybe maybe a proto-democracy, not a true democracy, but a proto-democracy run by parliament. And uh, that you don't see the monarchy restored to England until the Stuarts get on the scene. And I want to say that's like 1660. Don't quote me on that, but but mid-late... Mid-late 1600s, the Stuarts, the House of Stuart, um, become monarchs, and this is the restoration of the monarchy to England. 
So you have all this stuff going on. This is kind of the backdrop upon which um, Vogelin is going to make his case about the Puritan Gnostic movement. The reason this is interesting, I think it's interesting, is because Vogelin does a good job calling out from this period of time certain behaviors, characteristics, if you will, uh, uh, of Gnostic movements, Gnostic revolutions that apply forward to even today. So I think it's a good case study. Um, But let's take a minute to try to tie the Puritans to Gnosticism. So I talked a little bit about the difference between sacramentalism and this kind of uh, uh, more symbolic approach, you know, that only only the preaching of the word is is kind of a sacrament, but really uh, it's, it's, you know... you're not receiving grace through works. Just because you did a thing or participate in a thing isn't how you get saved. You know, it's, it's, you get saved through faith. And uh, that everything, it's sola scriptura, soli scripture. So when you have sacra- sacramentalism versus sola scriptura, I'll use as a shorthand. When you, when you strip out sacramentalism, when you strip out the sacraments, when you strip out tying the sacred to everyday life, what, what you end up with is kind of a faith that's intellectualized, it's decontextualized, it's dehumanized. And here's what I mean by that. And I think this is a legitimate critique of the Protestant movement, uh, uh, a kind of Calvinist, you know, refer, like true Reformation Protestantism. When you invoke the, the sacraments or when you have a more of a liturgy, you know, when you go to church, there are smells and bells, beautiful stained glass windows, choir, choral music, uh, incense burning. You know, you've got a structure where you stand, now you kneel, now you, you genuflect, you make the sign of the cross. Now you're going to come up and take communion. You're going to, you know, you're going to make the sign of the cross. You're going to kneel for communion, all these things. You're participating in this kind of majestic, spiritual, sacramental, beautiful thing. By doing that, you're involving your whole body in your worship of God and in your experience of God. You're smelling things, you're seeing things, you're hearing things, you're physically moving, tasting, touching, and so on. So, so you, you are fully present in this experience of the faith. And in, in and through all that, on some levels and at some times, you're receiving God's grace. And so it's a very holistic approach. When you say, no, 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 none of that, that's all hocus pocus, that's all Babylon, that's all fake, that's all empty works and deeds, and that's going to lead to death. Actually, you need to have faith. Well, faith is kind of this, what is faith? Like I had faith in Christ. I, I believe in Christ. Well, that's this kind of internal, intellectual, kind of soulish thing. It doesn't require physical activity. It doesn't require smelling something, reading something. It's just I have to believe. It's an inner thought, if you will, of the mind and heart. And then on top of that, the preaching of Scripture. It's like Scripture is the only thing that matters. It's what governs me and what guides me. So, so I guess at the most I'm going to read Scripture and I'm going to hear Scripture. But, but in church, it's a very passive thing. I'm sitting listening to someone preach. And on my own, I might be reading and meditating. So you, you start to intellectualize the only kind of sacred aspect of the faith. You, you, you strip away all the parts of our humanity that, that, in, that involve us in living. 
and you just are sitting with a faith of the mind and, and of the heart, I could say. I don't want to just say it's only in your head. What you end up doing is you you create this um, decontextualized, dehumanized faith. It's an intellectualized grasp of, of, of faith. And where this is going, where I'm trying to go with this awkwardly, I apologize, is Gnosticism, Gnosis, is about knowing. It's about intellectual insight. It's If you can know something, some secret knowledge, that's where you become saved. Secret knowledge is your salvation. If you just can know this thing, it will set you free. If you can know this thing, you can break free. This is why we talk about people being woke. The wokesters think that they have come to know something that you and I don't know. They have woken up. There's an enlightenment that has happened for them because they know something that you don't know. And it's a religion. And so I think this idea of Puritans being you know, early Gnostics, uh, at least in Western civilization, Gnosticism goes way back beyond the Puritans. It's interesting because I think there is a parallel there of the Protestant you know, faith is very much a faith of the intellect. It's a very much knowing thing. Like, you, if I can only be governed by Scripture, then that means if I know Scripture, I can be well governed before God. And those that don't know Scripture are adrift. They're lost. They have no hope. So this disembodiment of the faith, and I think that's definitely kind of parallel with Gnosticism. The other thing is you've got this kind of individualism and guidance of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you've got uh, Joachim of Flora talking about this age where there'll be no need for rulers, no need for government, no need for leaders in the church or priests. The Holy Spirit will just guide each and every individual in the way they should go, and it'll just be this big, happy brotherhood. And that's really, I mean, initially what the Puritans, some of the Puritans were arguing for. You know, they weren't a formalized group. They didn't have a bunch of rules and regulations. It was a movement. Now, over time, it did coalesce into groups like Congregationalists and Presbyterians and so on. But the Puritans were a collection of people that had this purifying zeal and had different ideas on how that should happen. Uh, so you have this new illumination leading to salvation, this understanding of Scripture. If you really understand the truth, if you understand Scripture, you're on your way to being saved, very Gnostic. And then you have this drive, and I think this is one of the kind of damning um, damning charges against Puritans, the Puritans of the age. There was this drive to transform society into the sort of new Jerusalem. They wanted to purify the church. They wanted to overthrow the government. They wanted to institute... Uh, better guidance and governance and in a better country and so on, not just to make things better, but they they I think they believe like we can create this heaven on earth, that the new kingdom's coming, Christ is bringing his kingdom, but we can participate in this, we can bring it sooner, we can, if we do these things, we can, it's almost like, yeah, God's coming, but because we see the truth in scripture, it's on us to make it happen. Although it's not works, but we're participating in this great thing. And if we have faith, so this kind of weird murky water where a lot of Puritans at the time seemingly believed they were bringing in kind of a new age, if you will, and uh, a new age that would transform society into a new Jerusalem, peace, goodwill, the brotherhood, priesthood of all men, etc. It's kind of like this Joachim of Flora's third realm. And so you see how Vogelin can kind of tie the Puritan movement to a more Gnostic movement in general. 
Now, let's take a few minutes to talk about some of the observations that Vogelin has and some of his critiques, and then we'll get this thing wrapped up. So there's a few things that he talks about when it comes to these types of movements that need to be in place. The first thing is every movement needs to have a cause. You know, the word cause was kind of a term that was in recent use in the political sense in the 1600s with regard to politics. You know, like there's a cause, there's this thing that we care about. So every movement has to have a cause. And you can see that Antifa, BLM, Marxism, you look at the Bolshevik revolution, all these Gnostic revolutions, if you will, there's always a cause. There's some, there's some injustice, there's some terrible thing that needs to be made right, a wrong that needs to be made right. So every movement first has to have a cause. Number two, the cause is always advanced by proclaiming grievances to the multitudes. We got to criticize social evils. You got to criticize the conduct of the elites. You have to do this kind of proclamation. You can't just do this in quiet and build your little revolution. You got to do this because what it does when you proclaim the grievances to the multitudes, it elevates the proclaimer to a status of being more righteous, more good, more wise, more virtuous. You, you want to elevate yourself. And so you find your cause, not that you find it, but you have a cause and you proclaim this cause. You're outraged at what the government isn't doing. You're outraged by what the elites are doing. You're outraged by this injustice. It has to be made right. Now, the ill will of the people resulting uh, from your proclamation of the cause, the cause has to be focused. It has to be concentrated on a source of society's problem. You can't just talk about a bunch of stuff you're unhappy with. You've got to find a source. What is the cause of this problem? You look at today uh, with BLM. You know, there's all these grievances. Well, it's it's institutional racism, and specifically, it's whites, white males to be more specific. But it's you know, whites are the problem. You have to focus your cause on a source. There has to be a, 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 a like this is where it's coming from. So you get out there, you got to have your cause, you got to advance the cause by making it public and your grievances public, and then you make sure the ill will of the people are focused on the source. You have to concentrate. Uh, it could be government, it could be white people, it could be Jews. And by doing this, the revolutionaries demonstrate their wisdom and insight by attributing all of society's evils that actually exist because of the general fallen nature of man to something like the government, white people, corruption, so on. So in society, you have problems. Mankind has fallen. You're going to have problems in this world. You're going to have hate. You're going to have murder. You're going to have theft. You're going to have corruption. You are going to have conspiracies. I'm not saying like, oh, everything is fine and this is just like happens by accident because people are naughty. No, you have conspiracies. You have elites taking advantage. You have people capturing financial system systems. You have people capturing governmental regulators, uh, government regulators, double dipping and back dealing. You have the working class sold out uh, for a pot of stew. So this kind of stuff happens. I'm not, but but it happens because of the fallen nature of mankind. That fallen nature is not going away. So so these these revolutionaries will. You know, scream their grievance, everybody's upset, and then they focus it. If we could just deal with, if we just replace the government, if we could just purify the Church of England, if we could just get rid of white people, if we could just get rid of the Jews, everything would be better. Everything would be better. 
Because what they're doing is they attribute all that's bad in the world to this source. And you get people's indignation and ire and anger focused on them. Now, after this kind of preparation, the time now is ripe to form uh, a, for, for a new form of government, one that will be the complete remedy, solution to all evils. And this is what the Puritans were arguing for. And then if the revolution is to have a literary source, uh, leaders have to fit passages from the source to their doctrines and be willing to rely on special revelation. What does that mean? You'll see this a lot in the, in the Christian church where there's some strange movement, maybe a charismatic movement. I'm not anti-charismatic. You see these movements where some strange thing is happening. The leaders of that movement will take, you have to have some kind of authoritative, authoritative source. So they'll take something like the Bible and go, well, there's this one passage and there's these other passages. And if you interpret them in this way, you see clearly that God's trying to tell us something. They always have to do all these gymnastics to kind of make that work. So, so if you're going to have a literary source that you pull from to legitimize your, your movement and, and to legitimize your cause and to legitimize your hatred towards the source of, of your problems, you have to find a way to interpret that literary source. You have to kind of pick and choose and interpret in a certain way that supports you. You also have to ignore passages and other information that would undermine your argument. You see this with socialism. I mean, they're, they're very good at picking certain things and ignoring others. You see this with the whole BLM, woke, uh, you know, uh, critical theory, critical race theory. It's like, okay, you're being racist. It's like, well, okay, hang on a second. I get it. I'm a white guy. I was racist. Okay. But isn't that black person telling me that white people are terrible, uh, that white people are intrinsically evil? Isn't that black person being racist? No, 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 no. It's impossible for a black person to be racist. They can do anything. It, it just can't be racist because they're black. See, only whites can be racist. So you start to build up these strange interpretations of, I'm not giving you a literary source as an example here, but you, you build up these strange interpretations. You ignore, you ignore other ones. Okay, when you get this, this Gnostic experience consolidated, meaning when everyone kind of, Enough people latch onto your cause, they hear and feel and agree with your grievance, they're outraged and they're focused on the source of it. And you've advocated for this new form of quote unquote government. If we can just get rid of this problem and institute a different government, a better one, everything's gonna be fine. This is a very this is this is that Gnostic view of everything. Like we can get rid of this problem and make the world perfect. Uh, then you're ready for a leader. At that point, it, you need a leader. You know, adherents are, they're focused on the cause, uh, even to the neglect of their personal responsibilities and duties. They'll give their resources to the cause. They'll give time, talent, treasure. They're all in. One interesting characteristic that, that um, Vogelman calls out is that you, you really need these movements. Um, these movements really need women. And ladies, I, I do apologize for what I'm about to say. Uh, but he says, hey, look, women tend to be weak in judgment. They're emotionally accessible. They're tactically well-placed to influence husbands, children, servants, friends. And they're more likely to serve as intelligence officers regarding the state of their social circle. And they're also more likely uh, to be involved in financial aid. So women are more easily swayed, according to him. They're weaker in judgment, which... <laughs> 
look, I'm not going to play it like, oh, I, I don't have an opinion. I, I think women do make their decisions differently than men. You can criticize men, rightfully so, in the way that we approach things. Sometimes we're emotionally dull and we don't get certain, we miss totally certain things. But often women will make decisions based on how they feel. I mean, you look at presidential elections, you know, and a lot of women are like, I'm voting for this guy because I'm I'm scared or I feel upset about for my children or I'm I feel like that's not very fair. And and then a man's saying, Yeah, but hold on a second, but if you vote that guy in, don't you see the consequences? Yeah, but I don't I don't like the other guy. <laughs> now a lot of us are making decisions that way these days. I'm not trying to pick on you ladies, but the point being um, as sexes, women tend to, is broad stroke, and men tend to, you know, I'm talking in broad strokes here. But they tend to be more uh, weak in the way they judge, <laughs> emotionally accessible, uh, tactically well-placed. They're usually in a really good place to influence their husband, their children, and so on. And they're good at serving as kind of narcs. You know, if they're in a social circle and they notice that one of their friends is not towing the line, uh, they can report back. And so that's that's something that he said often helps these types of movements. And if you look at a lot of the, the kind of stuff we're dealing with now, the woke stuff, the BLM stuff, uh, a lot of the people involved in driving that are females. And there, look, there are a lot of guys involved. But even, you know, we on the right like to make fun of a lot of the men involved in, say, wokeism because we say he's feminized. The guy's had his, you know, he's had his uh, balls cut off and he's, he's practically a woman because he's just sitting there being pushed around, told what to do. He's not acting like a man. So you can see these movements tend to have a strong feminine component. Uh, to be successful. Once you get everything consolidated and you've got your leader in place, um, the people and, and you've and you've kind of uh, codified your your source literature. You've identified all these things. Everything's in place. People tend to be immune uh, to reason and argument. It's very hard to argue somebody out of their error. They're locked in, and that's that's uh, that's where they're going to stay. So, so those are some just observations that he made in general. There's a couple other things I thought were kind of interesting, and then we'll get this thing wrapped up. So he talks about two kind of, what would I call them, like technical devices that were employed uh, against criticism. You think, well, how is it you can't convince people out of their error? And there's a lot of there are a lot of reasons for that, but he said there were two technical devices that they used in the Puritan time, and you can see the same thing now. Uh, over the number of last number of ages and years, and even now in the current age, um, you, you know, in, in I'm thinking of like um, Condorcet and Comte and Marx. Like they, you'll you'll see what I'm saying here. So the first technical device is to make the scripture uh, scriptural camouflage effective. Why well, I mean scriptural camouflage? When you start to interpret things a very specific way, you kind of, you know twist things a little bit, you ignore certain data, you embrace other data, you ignore certain verses, you embrace others that kind of support your view of the world. That's that scriptural camouflage. To make the scriptural camouflage effective, uh, the scriptural selections and interpretations have to be standardized. So one of the challenges with the Puritan movement was it was very individualistic initially. And so people would all interpret scriptures they saw fit, et cetera. There's no leadership, there's no hierarchy. It's a lay movement in many ways. And so you have to standardize your interpretation of scripture for the thing to hold together. You have to have a, a way that everybody agrees that this um, is interpreted and, and, and handled. You 
you can't have all kinds of personal interpretations. It doesn't work. So you have to have systematic formulations of the new doctrine. Uh, otherwise, um, you're at a loss. You see this with the Puritans in Calvin's systematic theology. If you know Calvinism, but uh, John Calvin's institutes provided this really buttoned-down systematic theology that provided a latticework, a structure, a framework, and a way of interpreting Scripture that was novel um, in comparison to, say, the ancient church, the Orthodox Church, and the Roman Catholic Church, but provided the Puritans with a really nicely built structure with which to stand upon and thwart any type of critique. The second device protects the first. So you, you standardize your interpretation. So for the, for the Puritans, it was Calvin's Institute Systematic Theology. The second device that protects it is you make sure that no one can criticize it. And to do this, uh, the movement will put a taboo on the instruments of critique. So a person using the forbidden instruments will be subjected to social boycott. They could be canceled, as in today, and if possible, even exposed to political defamation. So, so if you think about today, like there are certain things you're not allowed to critique, and if you, if you to protect kind of the woke position, anyone that questions gets canceled. You know, if you if you use the tools or instruments uh, that people use to to critique something, you get destroyed. You think back during the COVID era, uh, you know, everybody was trust the science, trust the science, the data, the data, the data. You know, it was like this big thing. But as soon as you pulled out data that conflicted, uh, you, you know, you were destroyed. You were eliminated, silenced, politically destroyed, canceled, and so on. Uh, you, you even see in certain countries, people were arrested for revealing certain information just by making information available. This just happened actually recently in New Zealand just a few weeks ago. There was a whistleblower, somebody who was looking at the, their national health in, information and saying, hey, there's like a lot of extra deaths than usual going on here. There's a lot of cancer deaths and all stroke deaths. And like, what's going on? And he kept like raising the alarm internally. Nobody cared. No one paid attention. He kept trying to put it out there. Nobody cared. So he made it public. And as soon as he made it public, they arrested him. I mean, I think he just got released, but I mean, they came down on this guy. I don't even know his name. But you see this, um, this need to protect kind of the received wisdom. You have this systematic theology. Think of that in a figurative sense. It could be literal. It could be like Calvin's Institutes. Uh, or you could have this systematic theology of a woke group, a BLM, and so on. And then it's taboo to use any of the instruments, and if you use them, you get you get wiped out. So that's kind of interesting. Only, and I don't feel like I'm doing it justice, but it's interesting looking at our modern age and seeing, like you know, how people get canceled now, and so on. All right, uh, so that's that. I think, gosh, we could keep going. I've got a bunch more notes here, but I think that should give you a general idea of of um, of this section where. Vogelin is using the Puritans as an example. One thing that he does say, and boy, it's just it's just a great thing, and I wrote it down. It's a quote. I'm going to read it to you. But, but he's making the argument that, you know, these Gnostic movements try to take over our governments from within. They try to use, especially with a democracy, they try to use the tools and levers and freedoms afforded by democracy against it to kind of like almost like a cancer that gets in there and destroys the host. 
So I'm going to read a few quotes here. One is, Gnostic propaganda is political action and not perhaps a search for truth in the theoretical sense. And then he goes on to talk about uh, this Justice Jackson in the Tremello case. I need to look this up. Bill of Rights. Uh, so, so there was a, there was a uh, is it Terminello? Terminello? I don't know. It was a Terminello case, and Justice Jackson on the Supreme Court wrote a dissent. I, I haven't had a chance to look this up. But it, essentially, this justice wrote that, that the Bill of Rights is not a suicide pact. A democratic government is not supposed to become an accomplice in its own overthrow by letting Gnostic movements grow to the danger point of capturing existential representation by the legality of popular elections. A democratic government is not supposed to bow to the, quote, will of the people, but to put down the danger by force, if necessary, to break the letter of the Constitution to save the spirit of it. That's actually a very strong, and it's not an exact quote, but essentially he's saying the Bill of Rights isn't a suicide pact. A democratic government's not supposed to just become an accomplice to its own overthrow by letting some Gnostic movement grow to the point where you where it captures the government, existential representation, by the legality of popular elections. Just because they got popular uh, voted in doesn't mean that they should be allowed to do whatever they want. And that the will of the people isn't necessarily God, but that the government needs to put down by force, if necessary, this danger to break the letter of the Constitution to save the spirit of it. That's very interesting commentary there. I'm not sure what to do with that, quite honestly, in today's world. I, I'm not advocating for, for for violence, at least not right now, but it just it's just quite a strong statement. And he, and he said this back in the 1950s. I need to look up that Justice Jackson in the Terminello case. I'm probably not saying the last name right. But that's it. That's, uh, that is Vogelin's look at the Puritan case and some of the lessons he draws out of it. Guys, I know this is a little bit of, uh, it's a little bit of work. I hope that you're finding it interesting. I think we've got like one, maybe two more episodes to go and we're done with this. I really appreciate the time to talk through it because it helps me understand it better. The preparation for the episodes helps, of course, but even just articulating it verbally and and publishing this uh, helps me get better. Hopefully it's also a benefit to you, those that are interested. Uh, but once we get this sorted out, looking forward to moving on to things like interviews and some other topics. But in the meantime, I hope that you're enjoying this. I feel like, I feel like I'm almost begging you here. I'm, I'm rambling a little bit as I try to close this out. Guys, how about I say this? I love you all and I'm grateful for you. Thanks for listening. Uh, again, if you want to get the show notes, go to thecurrency.show forward slash episode 138. The other thing you can do while you're there, you can donate to the show. You can help me out, throw a couple nickels my way. You can email me. You can also sign up for my email newsletter. Guys, love you all. I'll catch you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.